Thanks for tuning into Reach Radio, a podcast for public health professionals looking to expand their network, be inspired, and discover resources and tools that help improve the experience of public health professionals and patients in their communities. I'm your host, Fran. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Reach Radio. I am so excited to be able to introduce you to Andrea Jordan, who is the program director, as well as a licensed clinical social worker, who's doing amazing work in a large transitional housing program for the chronically street homeless adults with severe mental illness and substance use disorders. Today, Andrea is going to be talking to us about the real realities and hardships of homelessness, but this conversation is undoubtedly going to be one of hope as she talks about the amazing work that she and her colleagues are doing. Breaking Ground is a phenomenal organization located in New York, and I can't wait for this conversation. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Hello. (laughs) Hello. Absolutely. We are so excited that you're with us today and can't wait to learn more about the amazing work that you and your organization are doing. So why don't we go ahead and get started? Tell us a little bit about the work of your organization, Breaking Ground. Yeah, absolutely. So Breaking Ground is a nonprofit based in New York City that builds housing for the homeless and also serves other vulnerable New Yorkers. We also operate homeless outreach teams who are working 24-7, scanning the streets of all of Queens, all of Brooklyn, and a large portion of Manhattan. So across all of our housing and our programs, which includes outreach, we serve around 9,000 homeless and vulnerable New Yorkers every year. And we are also New York's largest supportive housing developer. We have 25 properties in total that we run, not own all situations, but 25, including transitional and permanent. And that includes over 4,000 apartments. So what Breaking Ground really does is operates supportive housing and supportive housing is permanent housing. It's affordable housing, but it's paired with on-site social services that are designed to help people who did struggle with homelessness to remain housed and remain stable. So essentially you move into a supportive housing building, you become a New York City leaseholder, but you have a case manager and a social worker right there in the building. You know, maybe there's an office downstairs or down the hall. And a lot of supportive housing buildings, we also have medical care and psychiatric care. So, you know, in order to get into supportive housing, you don't need to be sober. You don't need to be taking medication. You can be still struggling with, you know, challenging relationships with substances, drugs, and alcohol. You could be not ready to address your mental health concerns. You might not even have any insight into your mental health diagnosis, but we kind of follow the the housing first model, which says, you know, you don't need to have any of those things. Just come on in, have a safe place to sleep. And all of that healing will follow once that stability of just just housing is achieved. So before the housing first model, individuals who were on the streets with severe mental illness would have to go through like a like a staircase of steps to, you know, do a detox, do a rehab, you know, get compliant with your medication. And then once you kind of graduate from all these steps, then you're rewarded with housing. And the housing first model says not not at all. How can you be expected to go to an outpatient mental health program if you don't have a bed, you know, or an alarm clock and these simple things that we take for granted. So the housing first model is, you know, breaking ground really kind of pioneered that by providing affordable, supportive housing with on-site providers to clients without them having to, you know, achieve anything in particular before they are 
granted, you know, a lease to sign. So I, I can tell you a little bit more about supportive housing if you like, or I can tell you a little bit more about transitional housing because I myself am a director of a transitional site, but I did used to work in permanent housing as well. I love it. Well, actually, yeah, I'd love to learn a little bit about both. But before we get there, I have to ask, I mean, homelessness is such a challenging situation, right, for anyone to have to deal with. And sometimes, as we know, mental health can be a problem that people are dealing with, which results in them, you know, not being able to secure or maintain housing. And I've also heard that in some cases, there are people who they don't want to be in housing. Is that is that true? Can you tell us a little bit about those types of scenarios? Yep. Absolutely. So currently I'm the director of a safe haven, which is a transitional housing program that's designed to be an alternative to the traditional New York City shelter system in that specifically we serve adults who are chronically street homeless. So they've really been out there for longer stretches of time. So not the people who are staying with friends or couch surfing or, you know, find themselves unable to, you know, make amends with a landlord and need to enter the shelter system for a couple of weeks. No, we really serve the clients who are heavily entrenched at their street locations who have been homeless in some cases almost their entire lives. We have people who have been homeless since, you know, exiting the foster care system and just never really establishing roots anywhere and taking to, you know, decades really of living on the streets. So like I said, we serve these chronically street homeless adults and they don't come knocking on our door. That's not how we get our clients. They don't even bring themselves to an intake center. They're actually brought in to us, literally driven up to our front door by homeless outreach workers who have been tirelessly out there day after day after week and year, just trying to establish relationships and establish trust with these people who are really heavily entrenched on the streets and just don't seem to want to come inside. So, you know, the question is, why why wouldn't you want to come inside? If we're offering you a shelter, why would you prefer, you know, this box outdoors in the elements? And there's really a lot of answers to that question. And it's, it's quite complicated, but essentially the traditional shelter system is not designed for people who are severely mentally ill. That's one thing. There are generally strict rules in a shelter. You have to arrive to claim your bed at a certain time each night. You have to leave in the morning. You have to participate in, you know, your independent living plan or your service plan. And some people are just too psychiatrically high need to, to be able to navigate those ropes. And they choose to kind of have their own independence and stay on the street. Another reason is trauma. People who have a history of trauma often don't feel safe sleeping in a dormitory with dozens of other people that they don't know. It's the reason why people stay out of the shelter. And substance use that's maybe coupled with mental illness is one of the biggest. You know, think about it. If you are physically dependent on using, let's say, opiates, so that is if you don't use opiates for however long, you start entering, entering withdrawal and getting physically ill. You know, that means that your options are limited here. You can either keep using the substance or you can check yourself into a hospital for a medically assisted detox, but you're probably not going to go to a shelter. And the reason for that is 
it's pretty simple. You get searched at the front door. And if they find drugs or even a pipe or a lighter, in some cases, they'll confiscate that from you. Or maybe they'll say, sorry, you can't bring this in here and be be turned away. And that person, if they did try to enter the shelter, they would be quickly referred to a rehab or a detox to address this substance use and to eliminate that substance use so they can kind of, you know, succeed in the shelter. But if you're not ready to stop using that substance, and especially if you're physically dependent on that substance, how are you going to return to the shelter at 10 p.m. to claim your bed if you know that you need to score whatever it is you plan on using that night at 1030? You know, the shelter won't be flexible and, and work with you necessarily if you are dealing with kind of a complex relationship with substances. So that's kind of where the safe haven comes in. Like I said, I'm a safe haven director and we're an alternative to this traditional shelter system, which is really designed for people who are not struggling with addiction. Yes, there are services that can be offered, but once again, those services aren't really flexible in terms of allowing drug use to go on in the facility. So when the safe haven comes in, we kind of like take a totally flexible approach. We say, instead of needing to return every night by 10 PM, we say, do your best to stop by at least once every 72 hours, because we understand these people have been living on the street for 5, 10, 20, 30 years. They're not just going to show up to the safe haven and then immediately transition to living inside. It doesn't work that way. They might go out on the street for a few nights here and there. They might spend the whole day on the street and come back late at night. So we don't have a curfew or a schedule of any kind. We say, come and go as you please. We don't expect people or pressure people into getting jobs or entering treatment either. Just say, come as you are and stay as you are. And, you know, we'll make sure you have all the resources at your fingertips. If you do want to, you know, kind of make some changes in life, maybe that's see a psychiatrist or a therapist or try medication or, you know, take, you know, it could be a medication to help reduce your cravings for the substance you use. It's just a completely flexible approach. We also have case managers working really closely with the clients on gathering their vital documents. And that's a really key component of what goes on at the safe haven. Because, you know, say you've been on the street for 25 years, then you come into a, to a safe haven. The goal is to apply for permanent housing. But, you know, what do you think you need in order to apply for permanent housing? And the reality is that you need a photo ID, you need a birth certificate, you need a social security card, you need an active source of income and documented proof of that income. And for the purpose of supportive housing applications, you also need to have a psychosocial assessment on file and a psychiatric evaluation on file. I can't tell you how many clients I've met throughout my years doing this, who we can't get a birth certificate because they don't know where they were born. And in a lot of cases, they don't even know their name. They might have a name that they go by or that they've gone by the majority of their life, but they don't really have any records associated with, you know, their early childhood. And similarly, sometimes people, you know, don't, don't know their parents' names and there's various hurdles to obtaining these vital documents. And a lot of clients who are in this situation were certainly previously resistant to coming indoors, whether that be they are maybe suffering, or I shouldn't say suffering, they're living with schizophrenia 
and they might have a delusion that if they leave their location on the street, that something terrible will happen, or they might need to stay close by to that street location in order to get the substance that they use, or they might have just endured some horrific trauma, which rendered them just completely unwilling to sleep in a bed again, or kind of do those conventional things we associate with living indoors, like taking a shower and changing your clothes. So the safe haven takes a really, really patient and flexible approach. You know, we do have to operate a facility and, you know, maintain safety. So we do have security guards who have to search the residents as they come in. But, you know, we don't have metal detectors. And if somebody comes in and we find, you know, a bottle of alcohol in their belt, we won't write that person up or kick them out. We'll say, hey, would you mind taking that off site? And then we'll just maybe connect them with a case manager or a harm reduction specialist to make sure that they, they've got their safer drinking tips and tricks kind of ready to go. But we don't take a punitive approach to people who are still still using. And once again, we expect that it's totally normal if they were to go back out on the street and maybe not come back for days or weeks. It happens all the time. We have clients who come in, they complete their intake, they meet their case manager, get their room, and then they just disappear. And we tell the outreach team, hey, so-and-so hasn't been here for 72 hours. Can you look for them? And then the outreach team will go out there and try to find that person and say, hey, you know, you haven't been at your placement for a couple of days. Do you want to go back? If so, they'll offer a ride. And if not, you know, we can be flexible and we can hold that bed or we can discharge the client, opening the bed up for another person who is willing to coincide and just tell the outreach team, hey, you know, if that client who abandoned their bed expresses any interest in the future, you can definitely refer them back here. So sometimes the outreach teams attempt to make a placement, you know, three, four, five, six times before that placement, quote unquote, sticks. People might come in and just do the intake, get through the paperwork and just say, this is too institutional an environment and I got to get out of here. Even though as a safe haven, we make, you know, we take really strong measures to not come off as institutional. In some cases, it is inevitable because yes, you do need to have a case manager and do an intake packet, which is some basic paperwork. And, you know, you do need to be greeted by security when you come in the door. And after, you know, serving clients who have been living unsheltered for years and even decades, not uncommon, it's a huge adjustment and it might take years. It might take a couple of years for that person to to fully, fully transition. It's, It's not that they don't want help and that they don't want housing. It's that they they may not know how to go about navigating all the steps to get housing or they... So let's talk about that a yeah. little bit, Andrea. Let's yeah. talk about the steps to getting housing. What what does that look like? What does that entail? Totally. So we primarily place people into permanent supportive housing, which again, makes you a New York City leaseholder, but you're in a building that has supportive staff on site, case managers, social workers, psychiatrists, doctor, maybe some kind of recreational groups or activities to help you socialize, meet people. And in order to get into a supportive housing building, there's a few steps. The first thing is that you need to have an active housing packet which you get by uh, shelter or safe haven staff completing what we call a 2010E application with HRA. So this is just kind of like a survey of all the persons explores their diagnoses and their needs and their challenges and their strengths. And we attach to it 
a psych evaluation, which is a really in-depth document explaining the individual's kind of mental health and functional impairments and in what ways they're primarily disabled by mental illness or in what ways they might be primarily disabled by their substance use disorder. And then coupled with all those vital documents I talked about, the birth certificate, the social security card, the proof of income, the photo ID. We put all these things together with the application. We submit it to HRA. Then HRA comes back to us with a determination. That determination puts somebody into a category. There's a category for adults whose primary barrier to housing is serious mental illness. There's also a category for clients whose primary barrier to housing is their substance use disorder. And there's a category called general population, which you do need to have some kind of justification for needing supports on site once housed, but you don't need to quite meet the criteria for the other two categories that I just mentioned. So at the safe haven, majority of our clients fit into the categories of A and E, which are severe mental illness and substance use disorders, respectively. And we have a couple general population clients here and there, but for the most part, our population is who you would consider to be high need, which is why the outreach team, you know, brought them to the safe haven in the first place. They need a housing specialist and a case manager to help them get through these steps of getting an active housing package because if they could do it on their own, they maybe would have done it already. But they they really need kind of hand-holding step-by-step assistance, like getting in the car together, going to the social security office and you know, requesting a card and, and everything else that goes into it. So once the person has their active packet, they start getting called for interviews. This is usually facilitated by the Department of Homeless Services. We can also reach out directly to housing providers and sometimes get interviews that way, but they mostly come through DHS, Department of Homeless Services. And what is that process? Basically, they say, hey, we have a vacancy. The person you submit needs to fit this criteria. And if, you know, go ahead and submit somebody and then we'll come back and schedule an interview. So the staff are responsible for submitting clients who match these opportunities and then preparing the client to go through an interview. Wow. Uh, I Let me just, yeah. let's just pause right there for a moment. I'm just kind of like, there's so much, so much I involved. Know. And it, and I, and if it's overwhelming, just, you know, have, you know, describing it, I just can't even begin to imagine what it's like for an individual who's living with it. And not only that, but also what it's like for your team, right? Let's maybe let's talk a little bit about that. Like, how do you can do what you do? How do you, you know, just keep maintaining the, the strength, the energy, the empathy. Yeah. Tell us, tell us a little bit about the journey for the, for the support team, the folks that are, you know, there providing these services. I, I can imagine that. I mean, there, I'm sure there's some good days, but I bet there's some really hard days. Too. It's rough. It's rough. It's rough. Yes. And, you know, to add to how challenging it is, you know, it's not only the vicarious trauma that our clients are experiencing and describing to us, but it's that we are working with clients who have been just estranged from all systems of care for the longest time, who often, you know, come to us and finally see a doctor for the first time in 25 years and find out they have a terminal illness. And so we lose people at, you know, Pretty often. And people, you know, who are still out on the streets, you know, suffer some pretty traumatic situations. And it definitely has the ability to impact staff and overwhelm staff. 
you know, our frontline staff, our residential aides, their job is really to just stay in the hallway and be the eyes and the ears of the facility and look out for anyone who's in distress. And if you see somebody who's in distress, you're going to help them out, whether that's calling 911 or calling a social worker over. And it's really a crisis environment. So crisis intervention is a really big part of it. So how we deal with this, especially kind of some of that vicarious trauma for staff is taking an approach that's really trauma-informed. You know, we hear trauma-informed care as like a model of therapeutic care for clients, but it's really like an organizational model or kind of a way of approaching employees and staff alike. And trauma-informed care is basically an outlook that understands and considers how pervasive trauma is and promotes environments of healing rather than enforcing practices and policies and services that might inadvertently re-traumatize someone. So with this model, we approach every individual as if a trauma history is present. So it's kind of a universal precaution. So never assuming that someone is free from trauma and therefore free of that potential of being re-traumatized. So I take this, this, this approach with everybody, including staff. Obviously, I maintain professional relationships with staff and, and I'm not their therapist, but really just have to be sensitive to the possibility that some of the situations we encounter at work are triggering and we need to make space to process that and to provide support. The staff need to really be there to support one another. The operations team and the clinical team, they really need to come together as one and assist each other in order for this to not really burn you out quickly. So I'd say the trauma-informed approach is is really, really very, very important. Well, I'm so glad that those resources that you recognize, you know, the, the value that those resources and techniques can provide to staff as well, right? Because that's so incredibly important. When you think about the work of your organization and what are the things that you all look forward to the most? Like, are there some glimmers of hope perhaps in more funding or through collaborations and key stakeholders? What are the things that are sort of helping your organization to grow, you know, to scale the sustainable component, of course, but to be able to scale and really continue to do the good work that you're doing? Yeah. So I really like that question because right now is a really kind of important and critical time for breaking ground. We are in the process of acquiring new units of both temporary and permanent housing and bringing them online. And one project that I'm personally really excited about is a unique project. It's in Dumbo, Brooklyn, and it's the 90 Sands building. So this is a gigantic building. It was a former residential hotel. Breaking Ground acquired it, and we are converting it into almost 500 units of supportive and affordable housing, which includes, I believe, 300 units for people who are exiting homelessness. So it's a big deal. It's going to get a lot of people out of the safe havens quicker, off the streets quicker into housing. And we're excited for that to open up in 2022. And like I mentioned, we're also bringing on new transitional housing. Breaking Ground acquired a hotel in Manhattan, and that's eventually going to be converted into transitional housing and permanent housing. So, you know, we're just growing at a really rapid rate, and that is only going to help get more vulnerable New Yorkers into apartments and into transitional housing quicker. It's really exciting, and congratulations. (laughs) That's amazing. How easy is that? I mean, I can't, again, I I just imagine that, you know, 
challenges all the way around, right? What really makes for your organization's ability to, you know, bring in the help, bring in the sponsorship and the cooperation of the community? And and I wonder, is it localized or is it also sort of some national collaborations and partnerships that make it possible? I honestly would say that I, in my position, am not really doing the work of locating and bringing on new additional units and beds and buildings. Mm -hmm. So it's a little hard for me to answer, but I have a related thought, which, you know, breaking ground supportive housing model, it's really win-win. It's not only a benefit to the clients that we place into supportive housing, it's also beneficial to the community that we work with. So not only is it only the right thing to do, it's cost-effective. And there are major results in terms of long-term public savings, you know, specifically with people with severe mental illness or substance use disorders who have typically been really high volume users of Medicaid and public resources, jail, emergency rooms. So I thought it was interesting that in in 2013, a report by um, DOHMH, Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, came out with a report that concluded that support housing approximately saves 10,000 per person per year in public expenditures for emergency services and healthcare. So although it doesn't directly answer your question, I think that's just an important note about how our work does benefit the community and taxpayers alike. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's tremendously helpful, right? This I can't believe the time has gone by so quickly. I just I think I'm just so in, impressed by the the work that you do and and knowing that in your role, I mean, you're right there on the front line doing it day in and day out and you're so positive. You know, I just it's just really amazing. We often like to ask our guests to share with us a tool or a resource, something that they have just found invaluable either in the work that they're doing or you know, perhaps in the growth of your, your organization or in support of the individuals that you serve. Is there a tool or, or a resource that you'd like to share with our listeners? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and I'll, I'll keep this brief. So many times, you know, we see people who are homeless on the streets and it doesn't appear that they're connected to housing or shelter. So there's just this general widespread assumption that that person is not receiving any services. That is not the case. And that is because of homeless outreach teams. So that is my resource is the homeless outreach teams. Many people don't know that if you see a homeless person on the street who probably needs some help, you can call 311, ask to be connected to a homeless outreach team. A 311 dispatcher will take your call. They'll take down the details, the description of the individual and the location you're calling about, and they will send homeless outreach advocates to the location immediately. Literally, they'll be there in an hour. The team will pull up to that individual in an agency branded vehicle, and they're going to begin trying to build trust with that person. And they absolutely will offer them transportation to shelter right there on the spot. And in many cases, like I said, they're not interested, but it is still being offered. If the homeless outreach team arrives and the person is in distress, they'll call 911 and make sure they get to the hospital safely. So many people don't, don't know that 311 can actually result in this immediate action of, you know, trained individuals showing up and engaging the person and explaining their options. Okay, no, literally, Andrea, I just had to like Google that. And I did. And it's right here. This is like a national number. I didn't know this. <laughs> this is amazing. Very sincerely, no clue. 311. Yep. And there's also a 311 app in mm-hmm. New York City. 
And you can, unfortunately, I haven't looked at it in a few months, but I know it was kind of listed on there, not in not the most positive way, but somewhere under like report of community concern or something to that effect, you can type in your description of the individual and the location and submit that via the app and the team will still be there in under two hours. Wow. And so this is a safe resource, right? To like make sure that folks have access to, yeah. Absolutely. The homeless outreach team will show up there. And if the person doesn't want to go into the shelter and they don't need to go to the hospital, they're just going to maybe offer them a cup of coffee and kind of build a relationship with them. And then they're not going to leave it there. They're going to come back again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And they're going to keep telling the client all about the safe haven and how the safe haven is different from the shelter. And eventually we're hoping that person will say, okay, and get into that car with them and come to the front door of a facility like mine. Wow. That's really awesome. That is a very valuable resource. I can't thank you enough for sharing this. This is amazing. And I hope that everybody, you know, takes advantage of that, right? Because it's so important and it's yeah, definitely something that's needed. We, everybody needs a little help every now and then. And this is a great way to safely provide you know, help to those who need it. So thank you for sharing this with us. And thank course. you so much for, yeah, thank you for your time today. If our organization reaches, you know, here to make sure that organizations such as yours are well supported. If there is a listener today who'd like to learn more about the work of your organization, what would be the best way for them to contact you? You can contact me at my work email address, which is ajordan, A-J-O-R-D-A-N, at breakingground.org. Excellent. Well, Andrea, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you to our listeners. Thanks for tuning into Reach Radio. This program is made possible by listeners like you. To learn more about Reach and to support this program, visit www.reachtl.org.